Hello, my name is Michael Garrick, and this is Popping Culture Movie Reviews. My guest today is a comedian and film nerd, Michael Clayton. Thank you so much for coming on to the movie review. Thank you very much, man. Uh, no problem. Guys, uh, Michael Clayton, very funny comedian. If he's in your city, make sure you come out to one of his shows. He's hilarious. Uh, the movie you chose was The Shining. Um, this will be a 100% spoiler review. But before we spoil the movie, uh, Mike, do you believe they should watch it? Absolutely. Um, I think The Shining is not only one of the best horror films ever made, I think it's just a remarkable film top to bottom. And I think it's definitely, you know, ranks among one of the classics. Nice, nice. I 100% agree, guys. I think you should definitely watch it. Um, everything past this point is 100% spoilers. Um, Mike, any special reason why you chose this film? Yeah, so I... I love the director, Stanley Kubrick, in general. Like, Dr. Strangelove ranks as one of my favorite movies as well. Um, you know, I think he's just a remarkable filmmaker. Um, I love when directors who aren't primarily associated with horror do a horror film, because I think they just bring such a different approach to it. And what I love about The Shining is there's so much of it that is open to interpretation. Like, there's there's things that hint that there are su a supernatural presence, but there's a lot that's hinting a lot of the psychosis might just be in the main character's head, Jack Torrance's head. Um, and I like that duality. And I mean, there's an entire documentary, Room 237, that's just about how people have interpreted The Shining. And to have this movie where you can have 30 different people watch it and they all have a completely different interpretation of what exactly is going on. It's just a movie that is kind of a gift that keeps on giving. Like, I don't think you can ever watch The Shining and each time you watch it, not get something new out of it. I totally agree. Uh, for people that don't know, this movie is based on a book by... Well, I just Stephen forgot King. Stephen King. I don't forget, how do I forget Stephen King's name? Stephen Very King. loosely based, too. <laughs> and that's what I was about to get to. Um, have you read the book by chance? Yes, I'm a huge Stephen King fan as well, which is one of the other reasons that I love the film. He's my favorite author. And even though the movie takes significant liberties with the book, you know, when people say it's nothing like the book, I agree stylistically, it's nothing like the book, but I think you can still feel some like Stephen King DNA in certain scenes of the movie for sure. In your opinion, do you feel like Stephen King not liking this movie made sense or do you think it was kind of like uh you had an ego trip uh i don't think it's an ego trip you know if you're a writer i mean and i've heard many writers say this in the same way that if somebody took your joke it's like somebody yeah. took one of your babies like it is his baby he wrote that book he spent months putting that book together do i prefer the movie over the book even though i love the book yes and do i think there's anything wrong with the movie being different no but if I had worked that hard on something and then somebody's putting a portrayal of it and it's not at all what I was going for, even if it's good, I can understand why I would have an objection to that. Um, he has also warmed up to it in the last few years, not where he's necessarily a fan, but where he says, I recognize the brilliance of it, but it just, it's not the story I wanted to tell. Um, so, and it's the same, like, it's the same feeling I have about like Martin Scorsese when he says that, superhero movies aren't cinema. I don't agree, but I also think Martin Scorsese can say whatever the fuck he wants about film. <laughs> like, you know, I don't have to have that opinion. Um, 
but I can respect where it comes from and why he feels that way. Yeah. Um, totally agree. Yeah. And I, I think Stephen King is perfectly within his rights to feel that way. I just don't completely agree. I have a different perspective, though. It's nice. I just want to get your opinion on that. When it comes to the opening scene of this movie, how do you feel that it just sets the tone perfectly? Like, how would you, how do you describe the way he set that tone? So the opening is so good because it kind of plants the seed of dread while not even doing that much. Because the opening scene is just them driving up a hill to get to the hotel, you know, and it's driving, you know, in this circuitous route. And there's kind of like this wide, looks like probably what, like a helicopter shot coming over the waters. But it just makes you feel so dwarfed by the scenery around you. It makes you feel like you're almost going to be swallowed up whole by the scenery around you. And this car just seems like so kind of, you know, timid against it. And even the way they do the, the credits is very just kind of flat. And that music is just so haunting. I mean, they've, they've parodied the music in so many movies now, but that dun, dun, dun. It just does such a great job of kind of setting the mood. And one of the best things that I like about The Shining is it's not this movie that just throws things at you. Each scene is kind of building this block of dread so that when everything does finally snap, it's like it's been, you know, tightening the piano wire the entire time. And so it kind of sneaks up on you and how creepy it's making you feel. Like there's so many moments in that movie where I'm like, oh, what is that feeling? Oh, I think I'm feeling very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> like, and you don't realize it until you're kind of in that moment. Nice, I totally agree. Uh, was Jack Nicholson, was he already a star before this movie? Oh, unquestionably. Um, he was, I believe he had already won an Oscar at that point. Um, yeah, for Cuckoo's Nest. Because Cuckoo's oh, Nest came is... out in 1975. Okay, I did um, not know this was before. Okay, I thought Cuckoo's Nest yeah. was out there. Okay. So The Shining was shot in 79 and came out in 80. Um, Cuckoo's Nest was about 75 and he was an easy writer in 69 in like a supporting role. And he had also done five easy pieces, you know, the King of Marvin Garden. So he was already an established actor. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he was certainly a big name by that point. Um, Kubrick almost used him for a Napoleon movie, too, that he had hmm. worked on. Wanted him to play Napoleon, and that movie just never came to fruition. But he had a lot of love for Jack Nicholson. And I know I'd been wanting to work for him for a while. And every interview I've seen with Jack Nicholson, he's also had nothing but raves to say about Stanley Kubrick. Nice, nice. So do you think, um, besides, of course, Stephen King, because everybody wanted a piece of Stephen King at this time, even now, uh, do you think Jack Nicholson is one of the other reasons why this film was made? I think so. So to go back on why The Shining was even made as a movie, Stanley Kubrick had done a movie called Barry Lyndon prior to that, which Barry Lyndon is a fantastic like period piece. But it had also done a lot of things that were kind of new at the time like every period movie that you had shot before all those like costume dramas you shot them very flatly and he actually started to do like slow zoom in shots and things like that on a period piece and he had only used natural lighting on the movie and so it made every scene kind of look like a painting now the funny thing is is that was kind of looked upon unfavorably because they're like that's not how you shoot a period piece and now every period piece shoots that way because it was such a cool look but at the time the movie came out it bombed like it was a genuine bomb. So Stephen King basically said, I need to make a movie that's going to be populist entertainment that will turn a profit because otherwise Warner Brothers won't let me do whatever I want. 
because he wanted to have complete control over his film. So he basically agreed to adapt The Shining as kind of a financial move um, to just kind of have something that would be more likely to be a hit, which, you know, The Shining was a hit when it came out. Although critically, it was kind of maligned by a lot of people when it first came out. It was actually nominated for some Razzie Awards when it first came out, which is funny because it's, you know, now a classic and now nobody would say that it's a bad film, but people didn't quite know how to respond to it in some circles when it first was released. Hey, man, you think there's any Adam Sandler movies where people will be like, you know what? They shouldn't have got that razzle. I uh, I wonder if he might have one of those careers where like, like, for example, when you look at like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, like they have some very good movies, but their entire body of work is kind of research. Like they did all these comedy movies together. And I'm like, yeah, some of them are classics. A lot of their movies were fluff. <laughs> so I'm wondering if like, if that might happen to Adam Sandler, like, well, he'll be idolized for his body of work. And then you go, yeah, but outside of like three or four movies, a lot of this was fluff. <laughs> like, I could imagine that like 20 years from now, people will be like, you know, he hit those 90s hard, but. Uh... Well, and he's he is an exceptional actor when he's given good work, too. I mean, Uncut Gems was phenomenal, yeah. um, you know, and I, I think he can be a very good actor. I think he. I think he mainly does jobs now because he wants to go on vacation somewhere. <laughs> like, you know, and I don't begrudge him that, you know. Yeah, I definitely don't doubt him. He getting that Netflix money. I don't, I'm not mad at him at all. Yeah. Uh, um, but the, are you a fan of like uh, child actors? Like, do you think child actors like are a good majority of the time? I think they're good as long as they're playing children. <laughs> And what I mean by that is, like, I'll give an example. People raved about Dakota Fanning when she was younger. And I think Dakota Fanning has grown into a very good actor. But a lot of the roles that they had her play, they had her act like an adult in children's roles. Like, she would be way too mature for her age. She would be way too insightful for her age. She would, I, I and you you obviously, if you're a good actor, are going to be insightful to a certain level, but you need to portray yourself as if you're not as insightful. Like actually Abigail Breslin in Little Miss Sunshine, she played the little girl. She was a fantastic example. You believe she's a little girl. You know, she's a smart kid for her age, but she's still a kid. And, you know, is able to portray that emotional range really well. I think uh, Danny Lloyd in The Shining, I think, does a very good job. Um, Yeah. You know, I think he's certainly seems to have be more intuitive than most kids his age, but he's still a kid. He gets frightened easily. He gets nervous. You know, he's kind of curious and maybe more curious in situations than he should. But he certainly has has those childlike elements in certain scenes. Um, So I'm not opposed to child actors, I think. And I don't even ever really think it's the kid's fault. I think some of the ways that people direct child actors doesn't come across naturally. Yes, but like you said, I think he dominated. Like I think this was a great performance by him in this film. Like, not and, and I'm not against child actors either, but I just I've seen them when they're not directed well. But he was directed yes. well, and he definitely came to perform. And then we get to the mother, uh, Shelley Duvall, um, Wendy in the movie. Wendy, Wendy. After reading the book, Wendy was exactly what she was supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I felt, you know, and clearly, like, even though I love Kubrick, there's a lot of questionable 
details about how she was treated on the set. Um, oh, wow. I didn't know about yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, like just not like any kind of sexual context, but there was a lot of there were there have been suggestions that he was very abusive on set with her to kind of get this frightened performance out of her. Um, which I don't think is how you should do things. You know, there are people that you can admire their work a lot and think that their work is amazing and then be like, yeah, but I don't know that you should have done that. You know, we're still people. <laughs> like you mean like um, Joss Whedon stuff? Um, yeah, like similar stuff to that, where I don't think it was sexual in nature. I think the problem was is if you if you read Kubrick's biography and he comes across through a lot of his biographical materials as a genuinely sweet and gentle man in a lot of ways. But the one problem with Kubrick is the final product of the film, the end always justified the means. So like he would have people work 12, 14 hours if it meant that the movie was going to be that much better. You know, he would kind of overwork people. And so like, if you had to play a woman who's screaming and frightened through the entire movie, if making you genuinely scared and frightened through most of the movie, he felt was going to benefit the film, he was going to do it. And so I think the problem was, is I think sometimes his desire to get what he wanted on the screen sometimes overruled treating people how they should have been treated. Like not where I think he was necessarily an evil man, but I think that he certainly could have done a lot better on treating performers humanely, you know, cause there's no, I don't care how much you love film and I'm obsessed with film, you know, treating somebody horribly to get something out of him is not the way to do it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, that shot can only be so well. You don't need to, to get that perfect shot. Like you don't have to go over, over the limit for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, and now Shelly Duvall, the last time she was interviewed, she said only good things about Kubrick. So, you know, maybe those stories were inflated, you know, I hope they were, I'd prefer that, but like, uh, you know, if that was the case, I certainly don't think that should happen, but she unfairly gets criticism for that movie sometimes, but I think she's great in the film. Yeah, me too. Like the scene that actually, one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the movie for me is not even horror related. It's when she's talking to the therapist and they ask like why Danny's arm got broken and you see her smiling and like making light of like Jack's domestic abuse. And it is probably one of the most accurate portrayals of somebody covering for somebody who's a domestic abuser I've ever seen in film. Because she's trying with every inch of her being to try to act like, you know, people are making a big deal out of this, but it's not okay. And you can see she's uncomfortable as she's telling the therapist and you can see the therapist is uncomfortable. And it's actually kind of like this weirdly heartbreaking scene where she's smiling the entire time and trying to kind of downplay it. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm forgetting a little bit. Before we get to the twist, of course, why was he, how did he get that job, Jack? How did he get the job? So he was a writer who had, in the book details this more, but he was a writer who had lost his job as a teacher and basically had like flipped out at school, had been an alcoholic and had been drunk at school. So he was wanting to take a job where he could sustain an income, but also have enough time to write a novel. Like, cause he went to work on a novelist as a novelist. And so he took this job at the Overlook Hotel because he'd basically be working as a caretaker, but he'd have all this free time in between managing the hotel in which to work on his novel. And his wife and children, of course, were coming to the, you know, this basically what was a ski resort that was off season to like kind of stay in the hotel with him during that season. Nice. Okay, cool. I'll just make sure I got it. All right. I remember the teacher part. 
I remember him being an alcoholic and everything. I just, I couldn't remember how he got it. Okay. Uh, and when it comes to, like, taking care of the place, I like the fact that it's, like, it's a slow build. Like, it shows him taking care of the place. Yeah. And it slowly shows him, like, overly taking care of the place. Like, treating it more like his family than his own family. It does. And the movie also brilliantly plays into, you know, isolationism is a big part of horror. You know, putting people in a very limited setting. In fact, you're seeing more with, like, slasher movies. One of the things you'll notice, every slasher movie now has a reason on why cell phones aren't working. Either they broke or like they fell in the water or like they're on a retreat. Like there was one horror movie recently where they were on a no technology retreat because they have to figure out a way to have people disconnected from that. Um, And The Shining is perfect because it has this isolationist type of approach where these people are stuck in this hotel the entire time. If anything, this is the perfect movie for the pandemic because like people stuck inside for so long, it's like, well, no wonder he went crazy. Like, Exactly, exactly. Um, when it comes to the pacing in this film, uh, how do you feel yeah, they went around with the pacing? I think the pacing is actually kind of a masterclass in building suspense um, because the movie does not try to rush anything. Movie, I find the movie interesting from beginning to end, but it's not a movie that tries to give you all the creepiness right away. And one of the biggest problems that a lot of horror movies have today is they want all the scares to come right out at you. But this movie and another movie that came out the year before, Alien, are like a masterclass on creating an atmosphere where no matter where you are in the movie, there's a sense of discomfort in every scene just because of the way the atmosphere is created in these environments. Um, a lot of credit needs to go to like the set design too, because even the way that the overlook appears in that movie just feels haunting at all times. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I'm, I agree with the pacing. I can't think of one scene that I would cut out. No, no, it's a very taut film. Um, and it's also one of those movies that you almost get this tinge of excitement when stuff starts rolling. Like the scene where she comes up on the typewriter and you see that he's been mentally ill for far longer than you expected and deranged like from that scene forward there's almost like this blood rush that you get the rest of the scene because you're like okay anything that happens from here is going to be fucked like you're like this is really going to be in for a ride and from that moment forward it's what you've been building to the whole time and then it's just a fever pitch and then it just starts all hell starts breaking loose yes yes one of the scenes that's been parodied to death um the two girls in the hallway. Yes. Um, the Grady sisters. But the longest time I had no idea what that was. And then I finally saw The Shining and I was like, okay, this deserves to be parodied as much as it has been. Yeah. And The Shining is also one of those movies, like I always say, if you haven't seen the movie, yes, you have. You just didn't know it was The Shining yet because you see it in so many movies. I mean, I remember in Twister, like when they're out at the drive in movie theater movie they're watching is a shining yep like and then you know ready player ones had parodies of it um you know there's been other movies you know the they recreated a scene for dr sleep in the hotel which actually i thought was very well done um but yeah you've seen so many representations of the shining because it's just one of those movies that the way it's filmed almost every shot looks like a photograph i mean you could freeze almost every moment it just feels kind of iconic um one of the quotes that Kubrick had to Jack Nicholson on the set as he said the key to making a good film is not to take a photograph of real life it's to take a photograph of a photograph of real life 
And the idea of that is, is if you see a lot of those scenes, like the scene where Jack Nicholson kills Scatman Crothers character, mm-hmm. and then kind of leans up into the frame with that ominous look in the ax, it's in no way a pose that somebody would have in real life if they just killed somebody with an ax. But there's almost this operatic approach to how the characters are positioned, how the scenes are set up, like that just makes the whole thing come to life even more. Yeah, I mean, even that like that like care the way he carries himself with the axe out in the snow like where he's kind of you know lunging over it's still just such a creepy way to walk and i'm sure most people with an axe don't walk that way (laughs) but it just brings it to life even more well that goes back to what you said about working 12 hour days he probably started out walking normal but after 12 hours you bet back got probably got a little slip (laughs) like yeah god we still doing this okay um, one, one of the best little tidbits about that movie too, the scene, you know, the iconic scene where he's breaking through the door. Mm-hmm. So Jack Nicholson worked as a fire, as a volunteer firefighter. And so the first time he hit the door, he like broke through it the first time. So they actually had to get another door, like a stronger door for him to actually chop through a few times. Cause he was so used to like chopping through a door as a volunteer firefighter that the first door they had just fell apart after the first hit. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Do you know what kind of door they got for the final I shot? I think they had just had like a set door and they just okay. probably got kind of a cheaper door to break apart. Okay. You know, it's not like you would have just been able to tear through any door with one hit, but like they had had kind of a stunt door and then they're like, well, we probably have to get like a more conventional door because he's just going to tear through this. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, but yeah, that that's just, and with his putting his face um where between the door where the hole in the door that is also just something that's so iconic um uh i think it's on one of a few of the posters like the child's play also the uh fourth child's play fifth child's play film man i had it yep and it's just it's one of those things where in real life if a real life situation i'm pretty sure it wouldn't be as scary but on film it looks scary yeah i remember uh kevin smith talked about when he made clerks Mm-hmm. how he said everybody came up to him and said I love your movie because you talk the way that I talk and he said that's not really true though I, my characters talk the way we wish we would talk like if, you t- if you're actually talking to your friends the way that you usually talk is like what did you do this weekend got laid cool and then you go back to playing video games you usually don't have these like you know you'll have them on occasion but you don't constantly have these like very intellectual discussions about pop culture just in random conversation like that's not how you approach everyday things but you Film always is idealizing certain ways that you're communicating things. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like I said, on director, and this is very biased, but on director where it's like, okay, I do talk like this is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. And I think he certainly now, I think the one thing I'll say about Quentin is he has almost like a cadence to the way that he delivers lines that's very unique to his films. And it's interesting because there's like certain actors, like Samuel Jackson just knows how to read Tarantino poetry (laughs) like he knows how to make that make it pop like that but you'll every once in a while you'll see like a low supporting actor in his movies that don't quite get the cadence of his of his lines and it is almost like you know and I'm not trying to say this in terms of like that Tarantino Shakespeare but similar to Shakespeare you have performers that are just good at doing that type of dialogue and I think the same thing with Quentin Tarantino also Oh yeah, uh, I, I I agree completely. You've noticed that yeah. he keeps the same group of actors, like yeah, and like some actors, like I still maintain. I think DiCaprio's best acting work in his career has been in those two Quentin Tarantino movies he's done. I think yeah. he's exceptional in both. 
Hey, did you did you ever hear the story Samuel Jackson was like, yeah, he's a great actor. This ain't his first time saying the N-word either. This is Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was like, Sam was like, I, I learned very quickly. Like he was like, I'm so sorry, I feel bad about saying him. Sam was like, Oh, he, he said this, Lisa. This a, he got practice. Huh. <laughs> I did hear something similar to that. Yeah, like he um, didn't want to say it on apparently he didn't want to say it while they were filming. But I think Sam was just like, yeah, I understand he didn't want to say it while we were filming, but uh, he he's had a little, he's done a few push-ups. And, um, you know. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like uh, <laughs> I started, the funniest thing I remember about that was uh, the character Don Johnson played. Mm-hmm. Um, that was originally supposed to be played by Kevin Costner. Hmm. Um, and I had a friend of mine who's like, man, I wish Kevin Costner would have played the role. And I'm like, why do you say that? And I'm like, Don Johnson was good in that role. You know, he was a really deplorable character. He's like, I just feel like I can believe it more if Kevin Costner was saying the N-word. And I'm like, that was your, that was your, that was your guideline. I'm like, you think he would be better? That's such a weird, it's not even racist. It's just weird. <laughs> Is this person black? This person was not black, which made oh, okay. me very uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Okay. For some reason, I understand now since they're not black. Like, I, okay, maybe I, I, I kind of get why he said it now. I but, could uh, see where he could have been an interesting character for that. Like, I think Kevin Costner is a good actor, yeah. um, but I thought Don John- Johnson fit that role really well and actually got yeah, the comedic parts pretty well. Yeah, he nailed it. That's what I was about to say. Like, he, I'm not saying Kevin isn't funny, but like, if anybody, like, that was the main reason why they they should have cast this guy because he he was he was like funny and also just like very evil at the same time like he had a great balance like he was very funny but he was not funny enough that you were going to shed any tears when they killed him <laughs> like oh yeah yeah exactly. like, <laughs> which yeah, is exactly great. what you wanted for that scene great you put it the right um, way exactly um but yeah there's a few directors that will have dialogue in a way that i feel is pretty authentic but like a lot of directors and it's not a bad thing it's what i like about them have a very stylized approach to how they're filming actors, to how they're doing lines, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the scene that it confused me the first time I saw it, but I can't, but after doing some research, I figured out why he did it. But uh, the first time you saw the scene of the blood in the elevator, did you get it? Um, I didn't get it initially. Now, as somebody, you know, who's been a lifelong horror film, it's such an evocative image, you know, and it's such a, and it's actually kind of an interesting image because, it's a fairly bloodless movie for most of the film. You know, outside of the blood coming out of the elevator, there isn't that much blood in that movie. You know, and there's not even that many people that die. There's essentially two fatalities, you know, if you don't count that the Grady sisters are already dead by the time you come there. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's one of those images. I mean, the entire first trailer was just the blood coming out of the elevator. And I mean, it's kind of a perfect example of what a good trailer is. A good trailer should show you nothing barely and make you want to see it like christopher nolan when he did inception all you saw first scene you saw was a scene of joseph gordon levitt like running up the walls and stuff and you're like i have no fucking clue what's happening in that movie but i have to see it and that's the sign of a good trailer and like when you watch the trailer for the shining it's just blood coming out of an elevator i'm like i have no idea what that's happening i have no idea what this is about but i want to see this like um i i thought that was a you know, it's and it's another scene that's been endlessly parodied in a number of films. 
Yeah. I love the fact that like, as I get older, I budget more like I, you know, I mutual funds, blah, 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 stuff like that. But uh, literally the last time I saw it, well, I watched it two days ago for this review, but when I watched it, my mind literally went to like, that's a lot of corn syrup. Like that's, they spent a <laughs> lot of money on all this corn yeah, syrup. Yeah, and it's, I feel, I feel sorry for the actors that have to go through being in scenes with that sometimes too. Like, um, I remember Jessica Chastain, she did a movie in It Chapter, she did a scene in It Chapter 2, which I think had the rec- record for most fake blood used in a scene up to that point. I believe it. Uh, and she said that like the thing that sucked was for like a good solid seven or eight days afterwards, she was still finding like fake blood that she had to wash off after multiple showers. It just sticks to everything. Yeah. Like, uh, and I, it, one of my favorite quotes about that was uh, in the third Nightmare on Elm Street, the uh, kid who plays, uh, there's a kid that gets like strapped to a bed Mm-hmm. and it gets cut up by freddie but the way they had to film it was they sat him upright so it was almost like he was being crucified for the scene like as the way the blood was rushing and all that but he said you know the reason i think they choose teenagers for all these movies is because they subject them to so many horrible things like that they just teenagers will put up with it a lot better than like a guy in his 30s would true true that true that like that makes total sense. Unless you get a guy that has like six kids and be like, fuck, man, this is all I got. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, we get to the ending. Um, the bartender. I want to make sure I don't forget about the bartender. Um, that guy, he really is my favorite character because he just his his is just so mellow, and you don't realize like because he's literally not in the movie a lot either. Like, but when he's in it, he, he just plays it perfect. Well, and just how all of the ghosts or, you know, or the figments of Jack's imagination, however you want to take it, all of them speak in this, like, articulate way that still feels so menacing. Like, when he's talking to Gray in the bathroom, he's like, your wife is trying to bring in an outside party. And, like, that is not a line that should inspire any kind of discomfort, but there's just something so unnerving about every calmly delivered articulate line that everybody does in that movie. Because you just know every line that they speak, you can hear their ulterior motive behind it. You can hear that there's something else going on that they're trying to provoke. Um, and Jack Nicholson at that bar scene, I mean, is just spectacular. Like him laughing, like, you know, he's like a little slow tonight. And then he just starts bursting out laughing. It's another scene that I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but I find like weirdly comical each time. And it's just... You know, it really is a remarkable, remarkable performance from him. And yeah, like the bartender is just this really, really unsettling presence because you can just feel him kind of prodding Jack along yeah. and kind of fostering this delusion. And you just know it's going to not end well. Yes, yes. And then we get to the final scene with that picture. And yeah, the way that story is just tied up with a little bow on it. It's just like, this is what this is what I want out of a movie. Like, yeah, it's you know what's funny too is uh it's the hundred year anniversary of that picture too, because the yeah. picture's date is nineteen twenty one. So like, um, yeah, it's such a great ending to the movie. Um, you know, I think one of the key things about horror movies is most of the time you want to leave people questioning whether or not the threat is still around, you know, or whether it still exists. Now that became just commonplace after. It was really Carrie was the first movie I remember doing that. 
But even when the even when The Shining came out, outside of Carrie and Friday the Thirteenth, you did not see that kind of ending to a horror movie that often. Most of the time, the threat was vanquished, and you know, life went back to normal near the end. But like, I love the fact that you kind of leave going, was he always a part of the hotel? You know, was he never, was he, you know, integrated into the hotel? Did he just become a part of it? It just raises so many questions. And that's, you know, one of the great things about Kubrick's movies is they aren't happy meals. You know, you don't eat them and then you're done with it an hour later. You know, you can feast on them for the rest of your life and still get little things from it. Um, you know, The Shining is just one example, but The Shining is certainly a great example of that. Nice, nice. I, I 100% agree. We're not using the microwave, we're using the stove. Yeah. Um, one through 10, what would you give this movie? I'd give it a 10 for sure. Um, you know, there's there's some small flaws you could probably say in the performances, but, you know, from a technical level, there's no question it's a 10. Like the steady cam shots, everything. And then I would say the performances, I would say, are at least a 9 out of 10 across the board, with plenty of them being a 10. And then atmosphere's 10, and then just, you know just how well the movie works. I mean, I have, it's so fun when I show people that have seen the shine, never seen the shining to this day, they all walk away going, man, that movie really holds up like for a 1980s movie. And even friends of mine who are not great about slow paced movies will usually have the patience for the shining. Cause they're like, the movie never lets me think that there's not something coming from all this tension. Yes, I would agree. I would give it a 10 myself. Just to add on, I think that the soundtrack, the theme they went with, with the music, just helped that film so much. Yeah. Uh, it's, I sometimes think about how much music is important to film. Like I've said before, I, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I love Star Wars. The most important person to Star Wars to me is John Williams. Because John Williams just makes, and not that George Lucas wasn't a genius for what he did, not that the actors didn't do a great job, I'm not minimizing any of their work, but there are some scenes in Star Wars that like him looking at the two moons and then playing like the John Williams music, like the dude, it's so powerful in a way that if you didn't have that music, it just would not resonate in the same way. I agree. I 100% agree. Also, man, I would love to meet the person or the people that thought of like what would lifesavers sound like oh yeah yeah the sound effects because they it still sounds awesome yeah, and it you sounds know, and, correct too like when you hear it it's like yeah that's it that's that's what it would sound like what's funny i've read uh, when you read about a lot of sound effects and visual effects engineers they're either like really like blue collar dudes or they're big nerds there's no in between and uh like i remember uh when they did west craven's new nightmare like Nancy Heather Langenkamp's husband in the movie as a special effects artist, but he looks like a preppy white guy. And he said, the sad thing is, is all the special effects artists were like these heavy metal shirt wearing like bearded dudes. So I felt very, very lame. But I remember Evil Dead, the sound effects supervisor on that. He was like really, really nerdy. And uh, there's a scene where a guy gets stabbed in his Achilles tendon with a pencil. And mm -hmm. it's like a very, very brutal scene, but has this like sound, they basically stuck a pencil into an apple and moved it around to get the sound effect. And he called it plotsing noises. And so like on the set, he would go out to Sam Raymond. He's like, I think we need more plotsing noises, <laughs> like in a very nerdy way. That's perfect. Um, dumb question, but I got to ask, do you believe that this movie has become a part of pop culture? I think it's not only a part of pop culture, but I would dare say, I think there's only a handful of movies that have inspired the level of enthusiasm 
and the level of like fan obsession um, that this movie's inspired. Um, perfect example, Lee Unkrich, who directed Toy Story 3 and worked on a lot of the earlier Pixar movies. He actually had, in the early days of the internet, the biggest uh, fan site of The Shining in the early days of the internet. He ran it because uh, The Shining is his favorite film too. And uh, in fact, there's a couple of callbacks to The Shining in Toy Story 3. Um, and I've heard pretty much in most of the movies he's worked in, he tries to sneak one in because he's that big of a fan. But he's not, you know, not alone. I mean, the number of people who are just kind of not only just love the movie, but are obsessed. I, I almost feel weird because being such a film nerd, people are always expecting me to have some type of like really snobbish type of selection in terms of what my favorite film is. You know, like, I think they're expecting me to go like, you know, the best movie is Cherries at the Gate. It's a Ukrainian film that not a lot of people have seen. But the truth is, I mean, The Shining is just endlessly entertaining. It's a well done film. Um, most people I know enjoy the movie. And I know probably 15 other people who say it's either their favorite movie or one of their favorites. I think it's just a movie that sits with people in a way that still works, you know, 40 years later. Yeah, I completely agree, man. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the movie review. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to your fans? And please tell them where they can follow you. Absolutely. Uh, you can follow me at Clayton Comedy on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. Um, I just, like I said, I always love being able to, first of all, talk about film with anybody. It's, you know, one of my favorite things, but also just love being able to chat comedy with another comic. And, uh, just want to take a shout out too. like, I've gotten to see you twice now. And like both times you tore the room down, man. You did awesome. I'm really, really glad that you're in comedy. And I like having a number of people from many different backgrounds who are bringing the funny and being able to offer a different perspective, especially on a topic like pop culture, where I could talk about it for hours. Yes, man. Uh, I mean, same for you, man, dude. Like, when I saw you, bro, you killed. Like, uh, seriously, if he's in your city, make sure you see him. Um, but yeah, man, uh, thank you so much for coming on, man. Um, thank you guys for listening and have an amazing day.